You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey, welcome. I'd like to thank everyone who's been talking about the podcast on the internet today. It's made me happy. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks to the uh, New York Times opinion blog. Although, uh, now now that I saw that um, they, they linked to our um, really outstanding uh, Lewis Lapham episode, uh, it made me think, and, and they embedded the whole player, it made me think I ought to be a little bit more respectable in these introductions. <laughs> let's keep it uh, Let's keep it time style. Just go straight just ahead. Just in case. Times is rated PG-13, is that right? <laughs> uh, who's on the show this week? Uh, this week is Zach Barron. Talk to Zach Barron. He Zach is a, Barron XXX. That's what his Twitter handle is. Uh, I think it's X Zach Barron X. <laughs> uh, but he's a good guy on Twitter or in the pages of GQ. Uh, he is a good writer, hard and, worker. Uh, yeah, man's uh, man's putting out the stories uh, like they're on fire. Yeah, yeah. Seems we, like every issue. I know it's not, but it seems like every issue. It actually is. It's every, every issue. issue. He has set a record at GQ for most consecutive issues for someone starting at the magazine. Get the fuck out. Yeah. Man's a workhorse. If you're a workhorse, you might want to put up a website about your work. Uh, There's no better place to do it than at Squarespace, and they are a sponsor. It's an all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, or online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter our offer code LONGFORM when you check out. This helps us. It helps you. It helps make a better web that starts with your website. Squarespace is an incredibly easy way to make a website. If you do not feel like making a website, if you are not that much of a workhorse, but you just want to let people know when you have done some work, your occasional work. I consider myself a work pony. (laughs) (laughs) Work, a work mini horse. Uh, You should try Tiny Letter. It's a simple, elegant way to send an email newsletter. It's done by the good people at MailChimp, and we thank them for their sponsorship. And now, here's Max with Zach Barron. Hello, Zach Barron. Hello. Welcome to the uh, Long Form Podcast. Thank you for having me. So here, I, ha- I have an idea, and uh, I will see if it works. I'm not sure it's going to work, but I have an idea. Uh, here's the idea. Um, so I read back through through your stuff, particularly your GQ stuff, uh, your prolific GQ stuff over the last year, and uh, I realized two things. One is that there's a there's a there's kind of like a, a consistent structure. To like the to the Zach Barron Uh-oh. article. Uh oh. But the other is that you've got this you got this knack, man. You're you're really good at uh at at kind of making something where maybe there was not maybe there was not a lot. Interesting. Like, like you know, I mean, you're writing about gigantic celebrities, uh, and you're sort of manufacturing a story sometimes. Manufacturing. Well, you know what I'm like. Okay, this is already <laughs> this is already off to a perfect start. Not manufacturing. That's not a perfect word. Although it kind of is, right? Like if you're going to go out and profile like uh, Bradley Cooper, sure, or uh, Idris Elba, sure. It's not like you're going to witness an exact event and report on it. You're going to spend some time with someone because there's a reason to spend some time with them right now, and you're mm-hmm. hoping to make something happen. Sure, those things are definitely manufactured in a sense. Sure. And you're looking for an interesting way into a person. You're looking for a way to sort of 
get to something real, even if it isn't there at the exact start. Well, it, I, I feel like the um, celebrity profile gets a, a bad rap. Yeah. Um, sometimes even on the long form podcast. <laughs> and, and of course, there, there, are, there are a million reasons for that, uh, including the fact that there are many, many stories where you go mini golfing with someone famous and it makes no sense. And obviously these, any encounter with someone sufficiently famous is incredibly negotiated and mediated. Right. You know, that said, a lot of that noise is just an excuse to to spend time with a human, you know. Right. When you profile someone and you go, say, race car driving with them or mini golfing or you play basketball with them or you jump out of a plane uh, or, or whatever it is you do with somebody, you know, some of that is to provide a writer with a scene and a story, uh, you know, most of it is an excuse to spend time next to another human, uh, not in the format that, that you and I are right now, where it's two people across the table from one another being like, so. Well, here's here's the idea. Uh, this format that we're in right now, I actually think is pretty similar to, in a way, to what you do. Yeah. Which is like, you just walked in here. We like shot the shit for a second. It's a Friday at seven o'clock. Mm-hmm. I asked you how your vacation was. <laughs> you know, you did, yes. And uh, and and now we're gonna sit down and we're gonna have this conversation. And it's uh, somewhat casual, mm-hmm. but not totally casual, right? It's not like we're actually just at the bar or whatever, right? Uh, and the hope is to have it both be entertaining, which is I assume a goal of your stories, absolutely, but also to get somewhere kind of like interesting and real and maybe like uh, a little uncomfortable yes definitely uncomfortable yeah and so here's the question is how can we make this conversation in this like a room that we've built in this office in brooklyn more interesting than just two guys sitting with microphones what would you do is my question um whatever it is you do in that room is like actually very hard to recreate you know i think it's a combination of adrenaline weeks and weeks of research hopefully i've done weeks and weeks of research yeah i I hope so i think it's interesting i you know obviously i've listened to the long form podcast before you you're a conversational interviewer um i actually don't think i am particularly i think that's one of the ways that things get interesting is when you sort of leave the pretense behind that you that it needs to be cordial or that it needs to be two bros talking it can be really hard to to get somewhere like that and and uh sometimes i'll i'll be a little bit more direct with it yeah i'm pretty terrified of this getting awkward yeah and i i think that tolerance for awkwardness which i have zero of in real life is a good quality when interviewing people ultimately it's like it's still two bros talking so there's kind of nothing you can do wrong like i remember right before i went um, and interviewed. I interviewed Kanye West recently, and right before I did that, I was talking to a colleague of mine, Will Welch, and he was like, "There's literally nothing you can say to Kanye that someone hasn't said a thousand times worse." And when we all know this, you know, and and yet people walk in the room with Kanye and they're terrified. But it's like, what could you say to Kanye that would actually produce a threshold of awkwardness that would be unbearable? So you weren't terrified when you sat across from Kanye? No, I was not terrified. Where, where were you? Like, uh, set, set the scene for us. Uh, okay. I was in the Mercer Hotel, uh, which he lives right around the corner from. Speaking of mediated experiences, you do not play fly on the wall with Kanye West in 2014. You're not going to, like, watch Kanye take a meeting, you <laughs> right. know? You're not going to go mini-golfing <laughs> with Kanye West. That would be a great story. Agreed. Kanye West mini-golfing would probably transcend the mini-golfing I'd like to think that Kanye West sucks at mini golfing. I like to think that he probably is probably not very good at it, and that would be upsetting to him. And maybe there would be something interesting in that. So you've got your inner room. All you're getting is Kanye talking. Do you have like a set amount of time? You have a set amount of time. Uh, obviously, with with uh, most famous folks, there's always a, a set amount of time. That set amount of time turns out to be pretty negotiable. Um, it's really a question of how the interview is going when you get to the end of that set amount of time. <laughs> I think with Kanye, it was like supposed to be 75 minutes and it ended up being two and a half hours. Nice. You got Kanye West 
is that something like you've negotiated? Has someone else negotiated that on your behalf? Are you just like a guy from GQ who's going to show up? One of the wonderful things about uh, GQ is they employ uh, professional people to negotiate this stuff with uh, with their sort of publicist counterparts. The writer is known after a certain point to the other camp. Right. Um, and you generally you'll have some input in terms of what are you guys doing and on what day is it taking place and what's the shape of it. Um, but there's very little interaction uh, between me and them before I, I get in the room. At least that's that's kind of tends to be the best case scenario. You know, I mean, in a in a famous person type situation, because it helps you to be like a mercenary. It's more just like when, you know, random celebrity X says, I, I only want to sit for 15 minutes. And and somebody has to turn that into seventy five minutes or two and a half hours or two days, you know, or a week or or what have you. And it's generally good for everybody's goodwill if you're not the person who's doing that, who's you know, doing that? or yeah. the person who's being like, no, we will not meet in a hotel lobby, you know, or we will not meet in the conference room of your record label. Okay, so before you go up to this hotel room at the Mercer, where's your game plan at? With Kanye West, like how how much time do you spend thinking about not just uh, how you're going to get him to sit down for much longer than 75 minutes, but uh, how much do you think about like the game plan of the interview? Like, do you know exactly where you're going when you walk in? Um, yeah, I mean, generally I do when I interview someone. It's it, the the process is sort of like a you read everything and you listen to everything or you watch everything or you everything <laughs> and then that sort of you try to turn that into questions i mean generally before i interview anyone i have a i have a basically a script that's 10 or 12 pages long that i've pretty much memorized it's not in random order it's in a it's in a potential order it's in a it's like a pathway that you could see it's like a hypothesis it's a there. hypothesis it's yeah. a guess it's like a very educated guess Right, and that that takes care of how am I gonna get to this place where I ask a, a difficult or an awkward question, you know? And it deals with your transitions, and it deals with it kind of gives you a narrative to check in on and make sure you're getting everything you want, you know? But say with someone like Kanye, if you watch everything, such as every interview ever with <laughs> Kanye, you know that you're not gonna get a particularly linear experience. Right. So then you start thinking about okay, what what in the past has gotten good results with Kanye? What in the past has not? You know, he's an interesting guy because he's an amazing talker. In a way, you could put anybody in that room and it would work out incredibly well. But on the other hand, he tends to steamroll everybody. He tends to talk about what he wants to talk about, and I didn't have a lot of interest uh, in doing that. You know, especially especially in 2014... You know, people know how Kanye feels about the fashion industry. Right. People, people kind of know how Kanye's opinion of himself. The people know about Kanye's marriage. The people know about Kanye and Jay Z's relationship. The people know about sort of the more sensitive side of, you know, uh, a question I asked him about walking into a sign, which was a, a horrible thing that happened to him. A bunch of paparazzi were sort of taking his picture to the point where he couldn't really lift his head up and they walked into a sign and then they made fun of him. Um, that seemed like a very human moment. Uh, you, you, there's not a lot of human moments out there with Kanye. I kind of wanted to know how he felt about that or a photo of him on a zip line going right. viral, looking sullen. It's interesting to hear you You phrased that sort of as like uh, people haven't heard him talk about this and people haven't heard him talk about that. Are you following what you like think other people might be interested in or is it what you are genuinely curious about? It's both. Kanye people have actually taken some pretty good runs at. But a lot like I I wrote a I wrote a profile of Pharrell earlier this year. And Pharrell's been a famous person since the late nineties. And you could there's just not one good profile of Pharrell. So generally I would go into these things feeling like the good thing hasn't been done yet. And some of it's about what I'm interested in, and some of it's just about feeling like I there's 17 holes here that I I would love to fill. Some good shit's been done about Kanye, though. I mean, there's been like pretty great interviews with Kanye. There have been, but you know, I, I very much admire Johnny Carmonica's interview with him. Short of that, um, you start reading them in a row, and they start looking pretty similar. 
This is no shots to anyone who's interviewed Kanye. A good friend of mine, Sean Fennessy, has interviewed Kanye like 17 times. But Sean will be the first to tell you that Kanye fell asleep in the middle of all of those interviews. You know? <laughs> and 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 that's not to say they're not good. Uh, many of them are. Kanye was just real tired. Although that was sort of in an earlier phase of his career. But Kanye is too good of a talker to have had bad interviews. You know, th- there's a Zane Lowe interview where he attains like true pinnacles of... Uh, chest beating free associational insanity which is a beautiful thing to watch you know and there's a a sway interview where he turns up on sway which is interesting to sort of watch sway try to check him in a way that i found very admirable and instructive for my own interview because kanye did not react well to that (laughs) (laughs) so you're in that room you're sitting across from like other people in the room it was actually not a hotel room it was in the lobby so Ah. in the restaurant we were sitting next to um meg ryan uh, who was just just eavesdropping? Just having lunch with some friends. Uh, Russell Simmons walked by at one point and showed off his drop crotch pants. Kanye did not look happy about that. I would be fucking intimidated as hell sitting across from Kanye West at a table anywhere. I think, especially when uh, there's this history of like you know him going off on people or he's not going so well. But you you did not feel that way. Uh, I mean, not Cause you particularly because like, no. you were prepared. Because yeah, because I feel prepared because I thought a lot about. I've watched him in these situations. I felt I feel like I have an idea of how to talk to him, you know. You know, one thing I sort of realized was it wasn't that you can't challenge Kanye. It's that you have to challenge Kanye in a way that Kanye understands, which means you have to think like Kanye a little bit. Like for instance actually in that interview, something that happened very early on, um it was an interesting moment. It was 8 days after his wedding. He'd been back from his honeymoon. He's very tired. He was doing the thing that that is a Kanye thing. It's his eye level was not, it's, you know, it's not eye to eye. He's looking over your shoulder and he's kind of just talking. And you ask a question and he kind of just keeps talking. And the stuff he was saying was stuff I heard him say before. Stuff about, you know, Disney World or Steve Jobs. And I just cut him off in the middle of what he was saying. I asked him a different question. And he said, you're not, you're not listening. And I said, I am listening. I heard you the other 12 times you said this exact thing. And, you know, I explained it to him. I said, you know, and I don't, I don't say that in a hostile way. You know, I don't say that in a gotcha kind of way. I say that in a, like, what are we here to do kind of way. Mm-hmm. You know, and what we're here to do is, is move forward and do something new. And not to talk about things that you've already said your piece on. That was phrased in Kanye speak. (laughs) You know, you were speaking Kanye. Kanye wants to do great things. Kanye does not want to just do the same plate old thing. You know, so there was that. There was a very nervy moment where you just cut him off, and an even nervier moment when you say, "I've heard you say this twelve times before." But you know, he kind of looked at me, and it was like it could go one way or another. And he said, "Yeah, you're right." And then all of a sudden, the eye level comes down, eye to eye, and you're having a conversation. So the lesson there is just to name it. I think it depends completely on the person, you know, and, and Kanye was someone that, that, like I said, I actually wouldn't challenge much. I mean, in that Sway interview, Sway challenges him and he starts screaming, you know, you ain't got the answer, Sway, which is an amazing thing that happened. And Sway wasn't wrong to challenge him, but Kanye in that case really did feel like Sway wasn't listening because the question didn't reflect that. I basically, the place I chose to object was a place that I felt like Kanye would understand the objection. Wouldn't it have been like kind of great if he had gone off on you, though? Depends. You know, again, I have like a tolerance for awkwardness in those situations. I've had people get really upset with me before. Like when? Bradley Cooper got very upset with me in an interview once. Steve McQueen got very upset with me in an interview once. The director, Steve McQueen. Sometimes that's good. Like in in the in the McQueen interview, we were talking about Twelve Years a Slave. I asked him about Django Unchained, the Tarantino movie. Again, like if you kind of do your homework on a guy, you have a sense sometimes of where they're going. Like, I I just didn't think in a million years that he liked Quentin Tarantino's Django Unchained. <laughs> and I asked him what he thought about it, told me a story. He said, you know, oh, we were shooting in New Orleans at the same time and we ran into each other and he said to me, or I said to him, you know, I'm just glad that, that you know, we're both here doing these these movies. And I said, well, you know, that's not your opinion of the film. And he's, you know, he's like glaring at me. He's getting pretty 
pretty angry. And he says, uh, well, you know, I'm just just glad that, that black actors are getting work. And I, and I was like, look, you've won all these prizes. You're an intellectual uh, artist, a brilliant film director, and your, your opinion of this film is you're glad that black actors are getting work. And he's just furious, glaring at me. He says, and he says through clenched teeth, he says the same thing. Yeah, I'm just glad that black actors are getting work. And that interaction, which I reprinted in full in the piece I wrote about him, tells you everything you need to know about his opinion of the film. Right. You know, and to me, it's like, was he angry at me? Yes. But that interaction was illuminating. You know, that's the kind of awkwardness that I'd be willing to, to tolerate. With Kanye, you like pressure him a little bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, he responds well to it, and then and then how like how does that progress? Like do you, you start feeling like you like you've kind of got it. You just get a sense for people's rhythms, you know. Another thing I noticed with Kanye was if you mention something, he might not address it right away, especially if his super ego said no. Ask him a kind of a two bald question about say Kim Kardashian, and all the alarm bells go off. But if you kind of ask it the right way, you could see it sort of like work its way down to the ego and and, and he and it would come up organically in something he was saying five minutes later because he wanted you to know what he thought about it. And so you say, okay, and you just start kind of seeding the things that you want to hear him talk about, you know, and, and watch him surface again, which is great. Usually when you can get multiple chances to interview people, which I usually do, Kanye, I did not is you start to see how they deal with questions and in the moment you just you just start answering them differently. I mean, you know, Kanye there's no pretense of buddy buddy at all. Right. It's like we're here to work. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to pause things for a second. Tell a little bit about our sponsor. It's Squarespace. You've heard me talk about Squarespace before. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website portfolio or online store. Uh, Perhaps there's a website you've been meaning to build. Maybe it's for yourself. Maybe it's for your business. Maybe you are your business, but you've been punting on that website. You've been procrastinating, putting it off. That is totally understandable because building a website is a huge pain in the ass. But with Squarespace, it's super easy. That's the whole idea. Everything's just drag and drop. You don't need to know a lick of code. You can just move things around, put them where you want. Everything works. They've got these beautiful templates, and uh, they look great no matter where you're looking at the site. So a phone, a tablet, phablet, Internet Explorer 4, it doesn't matter. site always looks great. Uh, It's super easy to use. If you do hit a snag, they've got like 24-7 support. Uh, It's not like 24-7 support. They actually have 24-7 support. They will help you through a jam. Uh, So go check it out. Start building that website. You can try it for free, absolute free, no credit card required, uh, squarespace.com. If you do decide to use the service, uh, put in the code LONGFORM. You'll get 10% off. You get a free domain name, uh, and it's a great way to support the show. So go check it out, squarespace.com. Use the code LONGFORM. Build that website you've been meaning to build. Uh, thanks very much to them for sponsoring the show. And now let's get back to Zach Barrett. interesting to hear you say that thing about like multiple interviews because it feels like uh one of the things that happens a lot in these pieces is like there'll be a couple of interactions and then later on like you know two-thirds of the way down the piece it there'll be this moment where you're like a couple weeks later or a couple days later you know we we're sitting and eating chinese food or whatever mm-hmm. and that's the moment where it gets a little bit more real like you start asking the sort of more difficult questions or, or people kind of drop their guard a little bit. Sure. But with Kanye, it's basically like, that's just never going to happen. It, it might or it might not. But but again, he's with not ha- going to be like, you know, let's get the fuck out of the Mercer Hotel and go play some mini golf. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I mean, there are people, there are people who want that warm up, you know, especially when they're going to talk about their childhood or their marriage or, or what have you. You know, I did a story, um, I did a piece about a, a DJ, a radio DJ on Hot 97 here in New York. Uh, named Mr. C, uh, who had a kind of fascinating moment on on air um, toward the end of last year where he first, in the first interview, vehemently denied his co-worker's allegation that he had been patronizing transgendered uh, prostitutes and then the second one broke down in tears and admitted it was true on the morning show 
about 7.30 in the morning uh, as, you know, millions of New Yorkers drove to work. Being interviewed by his boss. Being interviewed by his boss with a bunch of his coworkers around uh, on a station that he's been DJing at for, you know, uh, more than a decade in a city in which he is an, an icon of old school hip hop masculinity. Um, fascinating moment. And with C... You know, we ultimately talked about all of it. You know, like he he would tell me exactly what happened in the car and where where he where he'd pick people up and and how that would go down. But we hung out three or four times before I asked a single question about it. Yeah. You know, and and with that, it really you know you're building trust. What you're doing is I happen to be a huge fan of his, and what he's figuring out in that first hangout and that second hangout is like oh man you know about this drop i have you know and oh you know you know about the the that I used to dj for for big daddy kane or he can sort of sense the the goodwill and 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 the the sort of authenticity of the interest that it's not a kind of a drive by vulture thing which it wasn't if if i could have done a story on c in less less sort of intense circumstances, I would have happily done it. That's not the way that magazines generally work, unfortunately. Definitely not a drive-by vulture piece, but reading that story, you do wonder, like, why does he want to do this? Why does he want to talk about this in this way? Why does he want to talk about this in GQ? He didn't seem really, really seem to want to talk about it anywhere. Even people who don't want to talk tend to want to talk. People want to tell their stories it's like that's when they're the happiest that sounds like the corniest thing but it's the truth it's like one trick i sort of like learned when someone wants to take a conversation off the record now i think this is different when you're like in when you're you know doing watergate right right like it could really be helpful to have some people go on background but in culture land entertainment land profiles when someone wants to go off the record i i basically i just say you know, if you don't feel comfortable talking about it, that's fine. But I, you know, let's just let's just move forward. And they always, always just tell you what they're going to tell you off the record anyway, because people they want to tell you. And I hear your point about C. I don't think in a vacuum he'd want to talk about it. But I think if the approach is done the right way, you know, it was like I worked very hard to get a meeting with him, and in the meeting. You're basically just trying to establish some trust. I guess the question is, like, that's not an unsympathetic portrait of, of the men by any means. But are you in some way, like, violating the trust that you've built up by ultimately sharing that story as sort of candidly and nakedly as you did on the pages of one of America's largest magazines? Well, sure. And, you know, Joan Didion, right? But, like, do you think he regretted that story at all? No. And in fact, I have a like a really wonderful email from him that I will treasure forever that's in all caps and is amazing and that I got after that. And this will sort of sound self-aggrandizing probably, but the work is empathy, you know, especially in a story like that. It's like what you're trying to do is hear how he sees it, warts and all. I basically tried to write that story and just represent exactly the way that he experienced it and the way that he saw it and to really see it from his perspective you know to the point where you know a couple of people you know said oh that story's transphobic and i remember writing it and being like i think i have a a a better grasp on the terminology here than c does but it's not this i'm not the guy in the car with these people he is so to the extent that that worldview is represented it's his yes writers are always selling someone out sure Idris Elba is a great example of this, a profile I did where in a very strange moment, we had a conversation about a kid he had. I had been reading about him and in like two articles out of like a hundred in like, and you know, the interviews clearly took place within like a week or two of each other. He had a son and they didn't have a son anymore. (laughs) Right. And we were in Ibiza and had spent a bunch of time together and you know i finally said look i there was this weird moment in your press record where you had a son and he had a name and i mean you know he he obviously looked like he had seen a ghost or something but you know ultimately told me and it, it was a it's a pretty raw story about a woman that he had been in love with in in florida uh who had had his son 
and then someone kind of put it in his ear that maybe it wasn't his son. And then a paternity test showed that, in fact, it wasn't a son. And, you know, he he had wanted a son. It was like his dream. He was in love with this woman. And it just turned out that she had had a child by another man. That's the most telling moment in that whole story. Like, that, that story's great. And you're, like, hanging out with Elbow and he's, like, DJing and his shorts and a visa. <laughs> right. And it's, uh, it seems like a pretty good time. Reading that story, another thing that comes through is, like, man, Zach Barron's having, like, a pretty good time. I wish I liked EDM a little bit more <laughs> and, like, drunken, howling european tourists but the the way he responds to that thing when you ask him was really interesting because he he i mean at least in the story he basically is just like that's some shit that happened that shit is not gonna like bring me down yes and you you can immediately see like that psychology at play right you know and also with with people who are you know tend to be famous it's a double betrayal because not only are you putting a secret of theirs in the in the world but they're going to get asked about that by every single person who interviews them after right. you. You also unveil like, the secret. Exactly. For like else. They're going to be at a junket for like Thor 2 and someone's going to be like, yo, but what about that son that you thought you had? Right. You they're going to go have? for it. Right. And it's not going to be some cozy room in a visa with a guy that you know and you're friends with and, and you've, you've sort of become comfortable with. It's just going to be a, a clown with a press badge and 15 minutes of your time. So- when you put that stuff in stories, you really do need to think hard about it. But th- my answer is sort of the same, which is like if you feel like you have it from their perspective and you feel like you really represent the way that they experience it and the way that they think about it, then to me, you fulfilled your obligation to them. And in fact, like you say, it's the most revealing moment of the story by far. A- another thing that is in a lot of these stories of yours, it's interesting to hear you say that like the point is to get a story out from their vantage point is that there's not like in the C story for sure. And in the elbow story too, we don't hear from a lot of other people. It's true. Is that by design? Yeah. I mean, and there are secondaries in that story, you know, I mean, but yeah, I mean, I think it's like the act of identifying with one human, you know, and we're just, we're not Woodward and Bernstein out here, you know, and, 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 all power to those who are, but it's like, to me, this is an act of getting to know another human. Do the stakes not feel high? No, I think they feel very high because it's somebody's life. You know, uh, there's, there's no stakes higher than that. Um, that's like a human who you're putting on a page and, 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 and who you tend to be doing the kind of capstone, capstone profile of. I mean, because short of the New Yorker or something like that, and even sometimes not short of that, you know, you're getting the most time with someone. You're getting the most access to someone, especially, again, with the more famous folks. There's not a lot of people who have the power to sort of be like, yeah, like we're going to go to another country together um, and we're just going to spend a bunch of time together. So you're, you you tend to be writing the story that is the most comprehensive one. And to fuck that up is to do a horrible thing to another human being. So, yeah, I mean, the stakes feel incredibly high. I think that's the other reason to to circle back to something we were talking about before. Interviews just ain't that awkward because if you start from that premise, then it's not a game and you're not playing around and your purpose there is deadly serious. Doesn't mean it can't be fun. Doesn't mean you can't have a good time. But there's not a moment when you don't know that, that what you're doing is a very serious thing. Have you ever fucked it up? Not recently. I'm 32 yeah, I guess I've been doing this for close to 10 years. I fucked it up plenty, you know. I mean, I remember I I, my, I used to work at the Village Voice, and I remember, you know, I would, like, write some something about someone uh, and post on the website or put it in the newspaper, and the phone would ring, and it would be that person. <laughs> right. You know, I think uh, one of the lessons that you need to learn as a as a writer, and it's remarkable, I think it takes a, it takes a surprisingly long time to learn this, is... You're always writing about a real person. I read profiles where people are spent time in the presence of someone and they clearly never have paused to consider that this is like, they're so used to, you know, Pharrell or Michael Fassbender or Matt Damon being a guy on their TV that even in their presence, they lose sight of the fact that that's like an actual real human who has feelings and inner life and, and so on and so forth. And totally different stakes in the story than you do. Yes, exactly. Frankly, and, much more serious ones. All right. Well, I feel like I, I may have um, 
I may have already screwed up this like gimmicky idea for this interview, which was you teaching me about how to interview and do what you do. But how 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 are things going so far? You're doing great. Hey, thanks, I'm really man. I'm really. Are there like, hard questions I'm not asking you, Zach? I don't live an interesting enough life. You would have to figure out the thing that you hated most about about my writing, and then kind of come up with a a way to approach that. Do you want to do that? I'm planning to hold that for the like uh, heartfelt emotional ending, the authentic oh, okay. ending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you gotta save it to the end anyway in case I storm out. Right, right. But also, you know, you want to really build to like an emotional crescendo and have at the end of the st- you know the the story. Right, right. Yeah, you you're kind really, of softening me up. For yeah, the, for like you know, kill. at the end it's like actually when I you know when you really get Zach Barron to open up exactly yeah so we're gonna hold that yeah I like that that transition that was good (laughs) well you know I used to be a pretty shitty writer (laughs) Uh, but this is the point right where we'd go like back in time sure sure yeah talk a little uh, about your past sure how you got to this uh, Mm -hmm. uh, like illustrious moment in your life (laughs) illustrious wow this is this this is like interviewing at its finest. Yeah, this I is feel, pretty good. I feel great right now. That's the whole point. Buttering ask you me up. anything. Yeah, like even like a really hard question. <laughs> I do want to ask you about the Village Voice. I feel like everyone who's come on the show, uh, who got their start at an Alt Weekly, I feel compelled to ask them about their time at an Alt Weekly and how they feel now, having worked at an Alt Weekly, about the sad state of Alt Weekly. Yes, I mean this this for all of us. This could be a, a podcast of its own. This is amazing how many people who we've had on uh, got their start all weeklies. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was the that was the come up. I mean, I'm I'm right at the close to the last generation, I think, who will who will have had formative experiences there. I mean, I've talked to I was talking to a 26 year old writer last night who who did you know eight turbulent, memorable months of the Village Voice. But but you were there. I mean. I- I worked at all weeklies in 2004 to 2007 or 8, something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. But I was there early enough that, like, what came out on Wednesdays was exactly. the only thing that mattered. Exactly, exactly. And nobody, you know, nobody younger than us knows right. knows that. Fucking youngins. Exactly, exactly. Can we talk about millennials now? <laughs> I Yes, Village Voice. Yeah, man, uh, tell me about your it time It broke there. my heart. It does now. I ba- I'm basically stealing that from Tom Robbins, who was the old uh, Village Voice Metro columnist and union leader and uh, hero to to all uh, journalists in the city. But uh, shortly after The Voice uh, laid off Wayne Barrett, Tom Robbins uh, quit as well, basically in solidarity. It was also at the, at the end of a long run of union layoffs. And as a union rep, Tom had the, the, the pleasure of sitting in the room while the employee was the union member was was fired and tom gave this amazing speech in the newsroom which was one sentence long which was newspapers will break your heart um and then his phone rang and it was a source and he in the middle of the newsroom took the call and that was the end of the speech but you know the stories like that are are what people love about all weeklies and the end of that era is is what we all mourn. New, the chain called New Times bought the Village right. Voice, uh, I, and I was an intern before that happened. Right, so you saw that. You and saw I that saw that entire transition happen, and that resulted in the layoff of, you know, I mean, everyone from Dennis Lim, who was an incredibly talented film writer, to Ed Park, who's now an amazing editor with Amazon, to, to all of these these great writers. After that transition, were you like wistful for the pre New Times Village Voice? Oh, are you kidding? I I was like a everyone's voice experience was was the golden years were just were just well, that like was a like, year prior to when they got there. That was my leading question. I feel like that's like the the I don't know if this extends to magazines and other newspapers and stuff, but I, all weeklies I feel like. Everyone is all like has always perpetually been wistful of a different era. Yeah, and I mean, you can read Norman Mailer being like, "It's a wrap," on his like sixteenth of sixteen columns. <laughs> right. You know, eight months into the existence of the Village Voice, nostalgia is built into the alt weekly experience. Um, I think it really is coming to the end for them. Yeah. Um, I think the staffing will show you that and the quality of journalism will show you that and and how thick those papers are man have you picked up a village voice they're supermarket circulars and so people can sort of talk about different golden ages but the reality is this is definitely the dark age it was a phone book for 30 years what did you what did you learn at the village voice i mean you know i mean i, I still think about the first piece i ever wrote for the paper which i think was like a spring arts preview about Japanese noise rock, I believe. 
But I remember going to Chuck's office and standing next to him while he edited on the computer, and he just said, speed it up, speed it up, speed it up. And he was highlighting entire chunks of the piece and just hitting delete, <laughs> delete, delete, delete. And like to this day, I hear speed it up, speed it up, speed it up. I mean, a word count when you're learning to write is among the most beautiful things. And here's the curmudgeonly part. On the internet, obviously, there's no space limit, and usually the editor is super harried. If it's going to get edited at all. Yeah, exactly. But even very talented editors, you know, you, you talk to anybody who works at, at sites, and here I won't name names, but they'll they'll tell you. They'll be like, I, I, I get one pass, you know? I, you know, I, I used to write uh, a film column for Grantland, and I would file that column on a like a Wednesday morning. It'd be like a two thousand word column, and Dan Fearman, bless his heart, would do like a speed round with me, maybe two. But the fact is, is like I, I'd file at maybe seven a.m. and the thing was live at like eleven or twelve. Right. That is an unhealthy situation for an editor and obviously an unhealthy situation for a writer to some degree. And that's at an incredibly high level on the internet. It's like it's somewhat well-trod territory. Like I think I've talked about this on here before. It just feels like we're, uh, I don't know how people are supposed to get any better at this shit. I don't know either. But, you know, we have to also recognize that the, the standard that we're sort of valorizing here, you know, long magazine features is probably not the standard of people 10 years younger than us and who's to say that that we're we're right and they're wrong i mean i i I think it's like people are are finding other modes and they're finding audiences and they're finding success so for me to be like to me to be like you don't know how to write a lead it's like well you know three million people read your story (laughs) but most of those people if they were offered a staff writing gig at gq would take it maybe i mean it would it would be interesting that would be an interesting test. You know, I think if you're 25 and, and killing it at Grantland or, or Gawker or BuzzFeed, do you want to go sit on the bench? I mean, if, I guess if, if you got offered, you know, a job more like mine, say. For example, that's what I was driving at. Yeah. yeah uh, I don't know. I bet you would get different answers. Well, I guess I'm interested in that for you. I mean, like, uh, it seems like. You know, we don't have to talk about millennials anymore. But you are like I you know. you are right. Sorry, at, millennials. You're at like the youngest edge of a of an older generation. I yes, think, right. Like yes. if you if you remember when the paper coming out on Thursday was the most important thing of the week, then you are I think you are sufficiently of a different generation. Sure, and I'm I'm certainly probably in the feature well or you know the middle of the book in GQ most months. Right. I'm a be hustling. I'm a well, no, but I mean I'm I'm going to be the youngest. Right. byline in there you know give or take a, a few people well i guess i wonder how you feel about that like i like it seems to me like it's in no way about you not deserving to get there there are very few slots like the one you have sure and yet maybe people 10 years younger than you or even five years younger than you wouldn't even necessarily want the slot you have well i think that's what i was saying and then i think the other thing is is like there's certainly and this is to your point and we really should stop talking about millennials but it's like they're not getting the the we're, training. It would we're be trying to get millennials listening to the podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it would be hard if you were 25 and hadn't had a bunch of magazine trading to write a magazine feature that would pass muster at GQ or the Times Magazine or Esquire or Vanity Fair, or what have you. But that's not why those people wouldn't. Our hypothetical millennial would not want your job. The no, reason our hypothetical wanted... millennial would not want your job is because maybe GQ feels like kind of old. It does. They're like, it comes out once a month. So how do you feel about working at a place that maybe younger people feel like is kind of old and out of step? Um, I recognize their truth and hopefully they recognize mine to get a little Oprah with it. Look, I have an amazing job. All I do is write stories. Um, all I do is go to, to weird places. I guess the question is whether you have whether you have doubts about the future of the publications like the one you work at. You've seen... The Village Voice going from a phone book to a supermarket serial. How do you feel about the future of GQ? Um, I, you know, I think it's probably pretty it's pretty solid, and I think there's probably like reasons. I, look, I'm not a particular scholar of this this like business, you know. Although I would say that like I think Polo's money is gonna run out approximately never. <laughs> um, so if you're in that spot, um, 
that's probably going to work out for you. But look, I, you know, the skill set that we're talking about, that that's not going away. If you can interview somebody, if you can write a story, like I don't think we all need to have an existential crisis about this. That's not going anywhere. The economics of it are for someone smarter than me to figure out. But do I worry about GQ? No, it's like they, they're it's too good. I sometimes worry that um, there's no one particularly smart worrying about the economics. Well, I mean, that that may be a thing, but it's like, I didn't even want to be an editor, you know? Like, I, th- there's a writer path where you can be a writer or editor, and I definitely chose writer, let alone, like, guy who figures out the news business, you know? Did you, like, literally turn down an editing job? Sure. I mean, I was, at the end, I was the web editor at The Voice. I was a track I easily could have gotten on. Why not? Because ultimately, I wanted to be the... You know, I didn't want to have to manage other people's egos. I wanted to be the ego that that someone else had to manage, Um, which is a horrible thing to say, but it's true. It's like, I mean, especially, you know, I I feel like I invested a lot of my energy and heart and soul in The Voice, and I didn't like what happened to that publication, Um, although there's still a lot of talented people working there. And the lesson from that was if your name's not on it, maybe it's not for you, you know, because that's the only thing you could control. You know, and so I went from there to the Daily, which is Rupert Murdoch's iPad only newspaper. It didn't exist that long where I was a, a writer and then I freelanced and I was happy freelancing. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know that I read anything of yours at the Daily except for your Las Vegas story. Uh, well, that was because there was like 17 different paywalls that a person would have had to get through to to read the content, except for the Vegas story, which vaulted over all of them. And the Vegas story, we should say, this is my... Uh, uh, very casual segue here. Casual segue. Um, I am very grateful to Longform for republishing that Vegas piece, which has uh, disappeared uh, from the universe with the rest of the Daily Archives uh, until now. All right, I want to ask you about one more story. Mm-hmm. It's the 50 Cent story. Yes. Uh, crux of that story is that you asked 50 Cent to become your life coach. Yes. Very personal story for you. <laughs> it is. It's a lot yes. of Zach Barron in that story. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Like, I, I guess... What I'm interested in with that 50 Cent story is, is it didn't seem like it had a particular news hook. Magazines are very good at writing about people on the come up, you know, the rising star. Very good about writing at people on the top, you know, Le- the LeBron Jameses of the world. Um, and, of course, there's like a whole magazine genre that's just like shattered country legend at the very, very bottom, you know, in the Appalachian Hills. Um but a moment that magazines are not good at capturing and that I've always sort of been fascinated with is that, like, you're not at the top, but you're probably on the downslope. Um, it's obvious why magazines aren't good at that. That's like a – it's like a non-moment. It's the opposite of a moment. It's, it's, it's the condition of people not wanting to have you in their magazine. Um, but I've always been fascinated by that moment. Um, and I've always been fascinated by 50 cent. He lives alone in Mike Tyson's old mansion with like (laughs) 17 rooms. And I, and it's just like, I was like that. He's just like Gatsby, you know, wandering Tyson's old mansion. You know, he had come out with like the 50th law, which was like a corporate boardroom strategy. It's like 48 laws of power. Exactly. And he, he worked with that guy. Um, and then he actually had a, a workout book that no one really saw. Actually, it was pretty recent. Um, and then a colleague of mine had done a very quick interview with him about something else and um, had sent me like a part of it where 50 Cent sounded super motivational coachy. And I was like, what if what we did here was we, we did, I, I, I basically called it a backdoor profile. And the notion was, you go to him for help. They were real anxieties I had, but obviously they were a little bit tailored to to him. But of course, it was also a kind of backdoor way to get someone on that downslope to talk about being on that downslope. Um, he was an amazing life coach. <laughs> and to see him taking it so seriously made me rethink what would it have looked like if he was a really shitty life coach? Wouldn't that have been like beating up on sad Gatsby 50 Cent? I think it would have, yeah, it would have been a lot more like satire. How does that jive with what you were talking about earlier about like empathy and telling a story from someone's vantage point? 
again, it's like you have to proceed with sincerity and then, and you have to proceed with seeing it from the other person's point of view. And the point of view that I ran into was a guy taking this very seriously in a way that I wasn't. And so I kind of adjusted on the fly and, you know, he said, make vision boards, told us to make vision boards, something called a joint vision board where you and your partner make separate vision boards and then compare them in the you know, it's actually an amazing relationship advice. It's all the stuff you have in common and then all the things that are different. You you talk about it and one of the things that was different, you know, it was like, I think I say in a story, it was like, like a, a CBS sitcom or something. It's just all those kids on a vision board, you know, and, and uh, I think I had one. But it was clear that there was like an asymmetry there. You know, we had never talked about it and we talked about it. So I think in that case, the empathy was take this guy seriously. So make a joint board, make a joint board. I mean, I was lucky that, that I have a partner who was willing to go on a pretty absurd journey with me. Um, although I think she would say the same thing that we, you know, we ended up in a, a really interesting and, and useful place for the two of us. You know, not everybody, if you came home and said 50 Cent wants us to make vision boards would be like, okay. Uh, but she was like, okay. Um, he and he just talked about it in a lot of different ways about ways to take your life seriously and to take yourself seriously and and to and so I just tried to I tried to do that and then he still kind of called you out at the end he still kind of called me out sorry at the to end. spoil the whole story but no he did and 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 again rightly so it was like we had we had exchanged all these confidences he insulted another rapper uh, P Diddy um, I felt like he was doing album promo. I called him out on it and he called me out for basically trying to get like effectively like some sort of like quote uh, or controversy in the middle of a very intense and like more honest thing that we were we were sharing. It was I think the moment that he kind of sensed my bad faith, you know, that that there was another agenda at work and he wasn't he wasn't wrong, you know, Um, he was right. You know, and I, I hopefully I got that across in in the story as well. And luckily, like that got corrected in the process of the reporting. He called me out right in the moment, as opposed to having to you know read about it later. But yeah, it's the same thing. You know, sometimes sometimes I, you know I think the other thing about empathy is the other person I'm trying to be empathetic towards in that story, I guess, is myself. You know, it's like I was a character in that story. I try to be honest about my end of it too. All right, I'm gonna try and be uh, honest about my own end of it here okay we're gonna we're gonna get back to to you teaching me how to do this so here's a concern i have about this uh this podcast particularly the episodes that i do in this podcast mm-hmm. the thing that i worry about is that uh they are too tame i shy away from asking like particularly hard questions mm-hmm. and it makes them not as good so i'm gonna try and ask you a hard question okay i think that that quality it being sort of tame or at least the stakes not feeling as high to the reader is sometimes there in your work because of the nature of the work. You've had this incredible record, right? You started GQ a year ago and you've had a story in every issue, 12 in a row. It's like you should get a plaque. But it feels to me like uh, Jack Schaefer said this thing to me once about like uh, the whole goal of this stuff is to put your finger between uh, a rock and a hard place and tell the reader how much it hurts. And it feels to me like maybe in your work, you haven't told a really, really uncomfortable story yet. I would, I would tentatively agree with that. I think that's, that's fair. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't take offense to that at all. I think, you know, I did a story in Nevada. Right, um, on Clavin Bundy. On Clavin Bundy and the militia guys who were there. And that story is great, man. That that story is, I, I thought it was a really good story and it was this thing that you've been talking about this whole time, we've been talking about empathy and trying to understand things from people's vantage point. But at the same time, like, and you wrote this blog post recently about Ferguson and sort of connecting those people to Ferguson. Uh, but it wasn't Ferguson. Right. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of a joke. It was, it was definitely a joke. You know, or, was, I mean, it was a very, very serious, not very funny joke, but yeah. Clevin Bundy was. Sure. And so I guess my question is like, right now it seems to me like, that's what you're gravitating towards. I don't know what you're getting assigned and what you're not getting assigned at GQ. So it could be this question is mute because everything is assigned. But it feels to me like that's what you're gravitating towards now. And I wonder whether, like I do with this show, I aspire to not ask 
answered fire questions all the time mm-hmm. and uh, occasionally not be so tame. Right. I wonder if you uh, want to do that with your own work. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, I want to defend not my own work, but maybe the format a little bit. Um, I, I I think that people love to kind of put celebrity stuff or culture stuff in general kind of lower in a hierarchy than a say you know a serial killer story and i'm i'm not sure if i ever bought that i kind of i kind of think they're all the same story and if you you crack the human you crack the human you know and if it's more than one human you know you 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 crack that you know and i kind of think i've read as many sort of bad celebrity profiles as i have badly told tales of small town corruption or or murder i think the degree of difficulty is harder say whatever like seymour hirsch is doing right now is a degree of difficulty that i can't even fathom you know and what war reporters do but short of that it's all really hard and most people are not working hard enough and you know a few a few people are but there are stories that simply take more time. Yeah. That's on me in another way, too, of like 12 stories and 12 issues is an idiotic thing to do. Those can't be stories that take too much time. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to do them. Right. Some of them are leapfrogging. You know, some of them are in prog- progress longer. I mean, I'm, I got sure. I got dumb lucky in a way. Like, that. there's a lot of reasons why people don't have that many stories in a row. And things get held and release dates get moved and stories take longer to report. And I just got lucky in the sense that, oh, this one's taking longer to report. I can get on a plane and do this one right now and then return to it, which I did. There's a couple in there that that were like that. But yeah, like I would love to spend, you know, three months reporting something or six months reporting something. That's not a GQ issue. That's That's a me issue. That's a can I just shut up for one month and, and, you know, and go chase a butterfly, you know, and that's something it's like one of those things where people you can pay a lot of lip service to it. But like I see my actions and it's like I get on, I get on a plane on Sunday, you know, and I got off a plane like a week and a half ago. Is going after your like butterfly. Is that about having some more confidence? Maybe because because obviously on some level you're being confident that if you if you don't get like the ego reinforcement of publishing a story for three months, people will still like you'll still be a worthwhile human. You're already well ahead if you only need like a dopamine hit once a month. Most people I feel like need like uh their, you know, their Instagram yeah, yeah, shit every yeah, day. Yeah. Um, you know, so some of it is some of it is confidence and some of it is just like I go to work in an office every day. There's a lot of stories flying around. I have trouble letting them go. But yeah, like obviously people people who you know, the David Grands of the world or what have you have learned have learned to to let go and and sit in a room with you know paper stacked everywhere. I guess my question is like, do you aspire to do a David Grant story? I think that my problem is there's not really a thing that I'm willing to let go of. But don't you kind of worry that if you can't give it up, you'll never do those kinds of stories? Uh, sure. But you know, it's like I I, I think I think a you know there's still plenty of time for us all and 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 b it's like those stories tend to announce themselves you know it's like if you you know if you're there and you gotta stay there or if you're in the middle of a story and you want to keep reporting that story like it'll happen it'll happen organically you know i i I, yeah i don't fret about it too much but yes obviously that aspiration is there I'm, i'm sure um who writes magazine stories and doesn't, you know, want to write the long, complex, weird ones? But it's not something you feel insecure about. No. Um, you don't have to keep answering the same really, question over I don't here. really. No, it's actually a good interview technique to so just keep asking it. Um, Thanks. I don't really feel a lot of self-doubt in that respect. I kind of feel like, you know, put me on, put me on that plane and... And I'm coming back with it. So, you know, I don't worry too much about that now. Okay, you did a good job at asking, answering my hard question. I don't know if it's that hard. It wasn't that hard. Now I feel like I didn't even do a good job I asking the hard question. I think it was a hard question in the sense of to ask someone to talk about their ambitions 
is always a fundamentally embarrassing thing for a person to have to answer. Yeah, um, which that was is, exactly which what is, I was going for. Right, you were very, very lightly checking me on a certain frivolity in in my subject matter, which was like a, a very fair game question, but but you sort of couched it in a very gentle way that led us down a, a different path. Like in a way, being like, you can't possibly think this shit is as serious as this other stuff, you know? And then just sit in the awkwardness. Yeah. I mean, in a way, okay, you're going to have to piece together seven minutes of me stuttering versus like a hot 30 seconds that you would have gotten if you had just asked this straight up. Can I do it now? Yeah, go for it. You can't possibly take this shit as seriously as you seem to be taking it. Like, you're you're uh, putting it on a uh, pedestal. Your work is good, man. I'm not... Uh, here I go again. You, I'm just going to leave it there. Yeah. You can't possibly take this shit as seriously as you seem to be taking it. The fact is that I really do, though. Goddamn. <laughs> you know, I, I think that... Whatever. We're all the heroes in our own stories, right? So, so it would be weird if I was like, fuck, man. I got to interview a famous person tomorrow. Like... That would that would that would be strange. I mean, maybe people have that kind of contempt. In fact, you can tell people do that. You know, you, you read celebrity profiles all the time, where the writer seems like they're better than the subject. You know, but you know what pieces are garbage and what writers are garbage, the people who write those pieces. Okay. Thanks for coming on, Zach. I love you, Max. <laughs> I love you too, man. All right, we just stopped recording. The thing I was going to tell you, you were talking about this earlier about like uh, I forget what you, what you were saying. Uh, when people want to go off the record, mm-hmm. and you're just like, no, yeah. you can't go off the record. Uh, this thing happens all the fucking time with the podcast, where as soon as I do that, as soon as I stop recording, the next like couple of minutes are by far the most interesting thing that happens. I think that's an example of maybe you're doing it wrong. <laughs> all right, well, tell me why you think that that's an indication that I'm doing it wrong. I've got a theory, but you tell me yours. Uh, because, I, because I think um, like if you tax somebody enough, the only thing that happens after you hit the that button is is two people collapse in their chairs. It's just exhaustion, you know. It's not like great. Now we can now we can begin. Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, people are worried about like w- when you have a stake in this industry, people are worried about people who they work with listening to it. Like a lot of times, what happens is um, I press stop, and then people start talking shit. It's really what happens. Yeah. So usually when I stop the thing, then I'll say like, what should I have asked you that I didn't ask you? So what's your drive-by critique of this interview? What should I have asked you that I didn't ask you? Where should we have gone that we didn't go? Um, that's a great question that I don't necessarily, I don't know if I, if I, if there was like some, some burning thing that I feel like you missed. Um, what would you have done differently? Um, I think that, and I like this. I, I like listening to the, the podcast, but you you ask long questions and you ask digressive questions and ask six word questions, you know, and then let the other motherfucker hang himself, you know. One thing I've learned about interviewing people is the way that you think about them is rarely the way they think about themselves. And so that's good advice. That is a thing that has been true on this show fucking over and over and over again for me. And so th- I think the thing that was a hard thing to learn but that I I feel like I do well now is I try to figure out how they're thinking about themselves and that means asking pretty minimal kind of not weighted questions and start to get a sense of how they talk about themselves and how they think about themselves and then sort of start trying to get some of your ideas into that frame because to get someone to sort of argue with the version of themselves that's in your head where they're sort of correcting that record, you know, that can be sort of illuminating for you. It's like rarely illuminating for, you know, when you have to write the story at the end of it. My sense is that you feel like you're doing pretty well. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think I am. I think I'm really fucking good at the work. Okay, now I think that's our actual ending. Okay. I liked when I said I loved you better. You can do it again. Okay. I love you, Max. I love you too, Zach. 
Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lammer. Our editor is Jenna Weiss Berman. Our intern this week, Destiny Johnson. Thanks to our sponsors, Squarespace and Tiny Letter. Thanks very much to Zach Barron for holding my hand through that whole interview. Uh, thanks also to Zach for giving us the full text and the incredible images from his uh, story about Las Vegas, The Daily. Uh, we did not say much about it, and that's because you should just go read it. It's in the show notes right now. It's on longform.org. Check it out. See you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.